When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Dan Hanks, and today I'm thrilled to be chatting with a rather wonderful author of a science fiction epic that is so laugh-out-loud funny and bonkers, I'm going to title this the Foolishly Audacious episode. The novel in question is Stringers by Chris Panettiere, and it will be published by Angry Robot Books on the 12th of April 2022. Honestly, I've never laughed out loud at any book more than this one, and yet it is so full of heart and charm and the occasional bug sex fact that I just know you're all going to love it too. Chris, thank you for joining us today to talk about Stringers. Thank you for having me. Which is your new book out in April, I believe, everywhere, unless there are staggered release dates that I don't know about. No, I think it's everywhere on April 12th. Fantastic. Now, as promised, we've talked about this before, but you know, we're just going to wing this interview by starting off with one question, and that is, Chris, why are you the way that you are? You know, um, you're not the first to ask that question, and there's still no, there's still no real answer to it. I think it's um, a, a complete lack of filter, really, <laughs> that uh, that I've been accused of my whole life. It's been born out in nicknames. Um, in my grandfather called me Earbender when I was in Boy Scouts. My nickname was Mouth, um, which <laughs> which uh, from you know from Goonies. Uh, same same situation. And and I think um, I I just want to take any um, any ideas that I have uh, to their sort of maximum. So anytime I'm writing, um, if I can make it within within the bounds of the story um, without pulling you outside of the story if I can make it as extreme and bonkers as I possibly can I will um, of course without without breaking through the edges of the of the bounds of the story now see that question will make sense to anybody who has seen you interviewed previously but especially for people who have read and will be reading stringers which is an incredible book that defies explanation um so 
I would love for you to explain it to me. <laughs> Tell us, um, in your words, what stringers is about. Oh boy. Well, I don't. I, there's. There, I'll stay away from spoilers, but basically, it's the tale of. Uh, there's a few POVs. Um, there's there's two or three main characters, but the first one you're introduced to, um, who sort of introduces the concept of the story, is Ben Sullivan, who uh, is a average to below average individual um, in every respect, um, in terms of intelligence, uh, uh, drive to do things in his life, uh, and all of that. Um, but but he's He's suffered from a condition that no one can diagnose where throughout his whole life he has had very strange knowledge um, that he was just born with. He didn't learn it. Um, he didn't get it from anywhere. And it has crystallized into really three areas for him. Uh, one is um, the reproduction techniques of, of animals, specifically bugs. Uh, so he knows all about bug sex. Uh, the second one is antique watches. And the third is the chime. Now he doesn't know what the chime is, but he knows that he knows where it is though. He can't really describe where it is. And so his whole life has been uh, one big distraction where, because he's always spouting stuff about bug butts. Um, you know, he doesn't have a lot of friends. He's got one friend, Patton, who's very loyal and very, very, very is Patton. <laughs> um, and um, his whole life has been devoted to trying to figure out what's what's going on with him. And this draws the attraction of groups who are looking for the chime. And uh, this is a, a interesting take on an abduction story. I think you're underselling it with, I mean, interesting is doing a lot of work there. Well, um, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. I have, it's, it's definitely a humorous book and, and I wanted, I wanted people to laugh their absolute asses off. Uh, you know, it's been a rough few years for everybody and boy, you know, a happy interlude is always welcome. And so I, I wanted to write something that was absolutely hilarious. And, and of course I've always been my best audience and I think it's great, um, but, I, <laughs> but I really hope, but I really hope that other people see it the same way. That said, um, my favorite stories are not just stories that are funny. I enjoy funny stories, but my favorite stories are ones with huge penny drops, big emotional moments, and colossal payoffs. And so I tried to do that with this story. There are some very long game uh, subplots going on that hopefully deliver on some of those promises to have some big, awesome moments that will really satisfy the reader. Um, and that's pretty much my goal for, for everything I try to do. And I, I, th I don't think a humorous story can survive for 400 pages just being funny. It's obviously got to be real. You have to have real, you know, human feelings and all of that. I mean, I'd 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 like to agree with you normally, but I laughed so much during this book that I think you could pull it off. However, I did love the fact that it was this rich epic sort of space adventure. Um 
almost like a buddy movie um, with a jar of pickles, obviously. Um, but how do you combine, how do you sort of balance, like, making it so laugh out loud funny with being this sort of rich characters, big emotional moments. Yeah, that's that. I definitely found that to be a challenge um, because how do you, how do you take a reader back and forth between the funny and the, and the serious. And I think that, I think that if you go back to the roots of some of the, the best comedy and, and, and the best dark comedy, it all does come out of tragedy. A lot of it does. And it's making light of things as a way to handle them, which is really what Ben is doing. Um, ben has developed this very sharp, snarky sense of humor because really he could go he could go full tragic with with the way he is, or he could turn it funny turn it humorous and that's kind of what he's done and throughout the story as it progresses and there's serious things that happen in the story i once i had it down once i had the first draft i did have to go and turn dials you know i had to i had to make sure on the one hand i didn't want to tell jokes that were dialed down i i I think there's nothing worse than leaving a laugh on the table or in the same respect, leaving an emotional punch on the table. So really for me, it was turning both dials all the way up. And I think that even if you have, I think that something that's very, very funny can absolutely coexist with something that's very, very serious. So long as they both feel completely genuine and that they're both turned up all the way within the realistic realm of sort of human experience. Um, and, and I think, I mean, having known lots of people with that sort of full spectrum of, you know, today I might talk to my friend and they might be the funniest person I know. And I might talk to them on another day and, and they might be in the pits of despair. Um, that's a realistic spectrum. We don't see a whole lot of, uh, spec fiction or genre fiction that is, you know, trying to be trying to be funny all the time. And um, so when you do, you you want to have that balance. And I just think it's all of those emotions are part of the human spectrum. And so long as each one is expressed genuinely. And for Ben, he's feeling both at the same time. He's expressing one humorously. And his brain, his brain is a snarky asshole and is always talking shit at him. And that, that is a fun, a fun bit. Um, but all the emotions are genuine. And I think so long as you do that, and that means without artificially boosting them and without artificially tamping them down, if you try to make sure it comes off as genuine, I think you'll, you'll be fine in, in balancing a story with both. I, that's a very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> But a very good one. Um, now, I i mean, just sort of expanding on that a bit more, I've talked often enough about how I i follow, I, I have an instinct for things because I follow the structure of things that have come before. So I'm sort of standing on the shoulders of giants. You have taken all these different genres and um, beats and put them together in such a beautiful way. But there is 
I can't think of anything that's come before it that you would have been able to follow. Was there any inspiration that you you have followed? I mean, Publishers Weekly, your starred review mentions Hitchhiker's Guide, which I I think brought up. It was it was the closest I could get to it, but even then, I don't think it does Stringer's justice. So, how did you find it? Um, was there anything that inspired you that you you stuck to? That's you know, um, I of course read Hitchhikers when I was in middle school, and after I had written the first draft of Stringers, I went back and read it. Okay, and Hitchhikers is. Hitchhikers is, I would say, a bit more kind of freewheeling, like um, a bit more fun nonsense in a lot of ways, um, but also but also has some really salient moments, obviously. Um, but I didn't I didn't have it in my head when I wrote Stringers. I I, I in fact it was the furthest thing from my mind because. I wasn't thinking about a space comedy even when I first conceived of it. What I first conceived of was what if someone just was born with a bunch of crazy knowledge in their head? And of course, because of my affinity for potty humor that went to, you know, bugs fucking themselves in the head, (laughs) Um, which of course you'll find on page three. (laughs) Um, and, and but it just naturally morphed into a, a science fiction space tale, which of course I, I love. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's got it's got Ben's point of view. It also has the point of view of a um, pipe fitter uh, named Nasha, who is to us an alien. Um, she's a skeleton um, on another planet, and that's chapter two. And she suffers from the same affliction Ben does, but it manifests in a different way. Um, and and she, her her that first chapter helps you set the tone for this book. You know you're going to get the the really crazy, wild, funny stuff from Ben's side, while he's also suffering from this malady. But you, but you get a slightly different perspective from Nasha, who is much more grounded, much more uh, all business, um, even though she suffers from the same thing. And then later on, there's this other perspective called the instrument maker. And the instrument maker is like, if you read those chapters alone, it would be almost... And I don't want to put myself in the category of literary fiction, but the way it's written is completely different than the rest of the story because I wanted to strike a completely different tone um, with those six chapters. There's six chapters of The Instrument Maker. And because I wanted to make sure that some of the big moments hit right, I spent a lot of time layering those, layering those chapters in and timing them exactly right. So I wasn't thinking, I wasn't trying to build on something else. What I, all I was thinking was I wanted these three or four points of view to come together like almost like separate instruments and crescendo at exactly the right point, um, putting all of these things together in, in a big moment. And, um, 
So I, that was what I was really focused on as far as, as far as influences, you know, there's a lot of practical kind of hard sci-fi stuff in this book that, that you might not expect. And I, and I really do my best to take the reader through it in easy beats and to also make fun of it as I'm, as I'm doing it. Um, but a lot of that I got from, you know, I learned from, you know, the expanse and, and John Scalzi, uh, you know, and, um, and, and Patrick, um, Patrick Tomlinson, you know, who have written funny stuff. I'm not including the expanse in that The expanse is just super realistic, which I really like. but, you know, Scalzi and Tomlinson had written really funny stuff. Um, Valerie Valdez, you know, and, uh, uh, Rebecca Coffin-Daffer written really funny stuff. And I took definitely tone from those where I went, okay, what was their tone? How did they modulate the serious versus the funny? So I, I certainly looked to other authors for tone stuff, but boy, as far as the structure on this thing, I, I can't put it anywhere. I, re- I really can because I wasn't fi- I wasn't looking to anything for the structure because to me it had this total life of its own. Yeah, I think this will be a book that then other people will be inspired by and then use this as their frame of reference to to go off and write their novels. Um, now we could talk about your literary genius, uh, but let's skip straight to bug fucking. <laughs> okay. Um so why why? <laughs> yeah. Why and what cool facts did you discover? Well, so so you know, the genesis of the of the whole thing was me just being bored while I was in the courtroom. Um that that has been my day job for 20 years and I was watching a expert testify for the other side who I'd seen testify a million times and I was daydreaming and I literally, I swear to God, I, I started to think about, um, you know, what if I had, what if I had some strange knowledge in my head or what if somebody did? Cause I'm always thinking of story ideas. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, but what, what strange knowledge would be compelling and just shock the reader? And I thought, you know, I wonder if there is a bug or animal in the world that reproduces by fucking itself in the head. And I literally thought that when I got back to the hotel room, I Googled it. And the answer is not only yes, but there are many uh, head fucking animals uh, in the world, Um, mostly among um, hermaphroditic worms, but others do it too. And I was just like, I was just like, you know, it's sort of the, the principle, the axiomatic point that we've all learned about the internet in the last 25 years, which is if you can think of it, it exists. Or the other one, if you can think of it, there is porn of it, um, which friends, <laughs> friends, friends have told me is true. But, but um, so I, I was like, okay, this is, this is not only stuff that no one will have ever heard, you know, your, your average reader um, will not have been into this for the most part, but also it's just funny. It's just mother nature has a sense of humor. Um, And then the other cool part about it was I then used what I had learned about the animal kingdom to sort of inform Ben about 
his presumptions about other species, um, about how, how we're made. And actually, actually it, it did a lot from my own perspectives that, you know, you look at, you look at just how diverse the animal kingdom is here in terms of reproduction and, and the fact that you have animals that swap biological sex, um, that whose biological sex is determined by the temperature, the ambient temperature when they're in eggs, you know, and all that stuff. And I, I was just like this, there's such a huge world here. I'm going to be able to take this knowledge that I give Ben. And then I'm going to be able to, when he, when he gets abducted by a flesh construct, uh, bounty hunter, a shit talking flesh construct bounty hunter, um, it's gonna inform how he sees the the world outside the universe outside of just the planet earth um because the planet earth does actually have a extremely it's got riches of biological diversity that we don't think about every day so it really it was funny it was certainly not something you see every day and it played perfectly into the story so um so yeah, I came up with it because I wanted to know if there were um, animals that fucked themselves in the head and it became stringers. And did you, I mean, have you discovered a favorite fact that you now bring out at parties to wow people? Oh boy. Yeah. Let me tell you so many. I mean, I, I'm, I'm available for party booking. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, there's, pl- there's plenty. Um, one of my favorites is that, um, you know, narwhals have that giant sword sticking out of their head. And it's like this, it's, you look at it and you go, wow, narwhals are so badass. I mean, look at that giant sword. Um, they, they get to stab bad guys with that. And the thing is that they don't at all. Um, it's, it's a tooth that has grown through their head and they don't stab anything with it. Actually, what they do is kind of the cutest slash dumbest use for a giant sword sticking out of your head, which is that they literally bonk fish with it to, to knock them silly so they can eat them. So instead of, you know, being cool and stabbing stuff with it and spearing stuff, they just go bonk and they like, they knock fishes stupid and then they eat them. (laughs) So that's one. And then another great one, um, is that the, um, I think it's the giant squid, but there's a squid that you, you look at all its, all its arms, its tentacles. So it's got, you know, 10 total things sticking out of it. It's penis when erect is longer than all of those. So if you see a squid, if you happen to be in the ocean scuba diving and you see a squid and there's one long appendage sticking out, I would say run because that squid is horny for you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I could go on. Wise, wise words of advice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about formatting, which um, I mean, I don't know how much you want to go into, but formatting is slightly different in stringers, isn't it? Yeah. Um, there, there was a, you know, how do you, how do you communicate in an efficient way when someone's brain is a character in the book and that 
their brain is is yapping at them all the time. Um, I, I there was only one way to do it, and that was footnotes. And I I experimented by doing it in line. Um, in fact, in John Scalzi's book Old Man's War, the main character has a brain implant that talks to him that the main character names asshole. So he, he calls it asshole. And it's, but it's only used, you know, probably a dozen times, something like that. And so he was able to do it in line. Um, and also it, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't a real big like character in the story. It didn't, you know, it was, it was fairly tame by comparison to Ben's brain and stringers. And, uh, which is very active and that's that's part of his curse is he's got this active brain he can't turn off and it's always shouting bug facts at him and um so footnotes were, were the only way to do it and and if you think about his actual affliction it is something that he can if he wants he can kind of try to ignore and put on the sidelines but it's always going to be there well that is a footnote <laughs> You, if you want to ignore them, you can ignore them, but they are there and you can see that they're there. So the reader, I wanted the reader to experience it the same way Ben does. Now, look, I know there are people that hate footnotes and I knew that going in and I, but I could not, there was not a better way to do it. Um, I, 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 I don't mind footnotes. In fact, one of my favorite stories is, um, a Jeff Vandermeer book called city of saints and mad men. It's part of the Ambergris trilogy where one entire 60 page section is like, it's got half of every page is footnotes in like eight point font. It is an absolute beatdown, but an absolute pleasure to read. And in fact, in that chapter, Vandermeer says he has a footnote that says all the good stuff is going to be in the footnotes, <laughs> just taunting you. Right. And um, as a person who had just written a novel full of footnotes, I actually thought about skipping the section because I was like, this is too many footnotes, <laughs> but it was too good. It was too good. And it really lent itself to the story and it was hilarious and well done. But in, in stringers, there's probably, there's about a hundred footnotes. It's not like, it's not super crazy. And they're only in Ben's chapters and they're much heavier towards the beginning where you're, where I'm really showing you what he's going through. But then also it played in perfectly to the fact that pretty much every footnote is a punchline. Um, And so it actually flowed really, really well as a call and response, as a, as a, a a setup and a punchline. Um, And then sometimes rarely it's not, but most of the time it is. And then sometimes it's used in an unexpected way that really delivers a big, a big emotional moment. Um, so I, I, I don't regret using them at all while I understand that some readers are just very anti footnote. Um, the other thing is that, um, we had one chapter with some reverse text in it. And, um, unfortunately I wasn't, we weren't able to do it. We could do it in print, but we couldn't do it in ebook, um, because it wouldn't flow right. We had to do it as an image and then it was unreadable. So I had to do it in a way that is still very good, but not, it's just, it's not exquisite. <laughs> like I thought it was when we just reversed the text, but anyway, so we did do some strange formatting things, um, not gratuitously at all, 
but really to one, one stand as sort of a visual joke, um, a few times and, and two, because it, it, it really is a visual representation of what the characters are, are actually going through. Um, but so I, I recommend the, the, the physical copy. It's, it's just, it is the form it was supposed to be. Um, but by no means is it house of leaves, which I doubt there's even a ebook of house of leaves because it would be impossible to do because they have text in spirals and all sorts of crazy shit. So, so anyway, um, there's some, there's some odd formatting, but it's not just because it, it yeah. is because it was, it was absolutely necessary to tell the story. Yeah. I mean, it, it all, I think it combines seamlessly to, to get, it, it adds to the tone. I think the way you've done it is, is magnificent. But going back to um, when you said Ben's brain is a, is a character, which is, you know, it, he, it is absolutely. Um, you've got also a jar of pickles in there, which is its own character. And you've got Patton um, who is a sidekick, but not a sidekick because he is his own rich, fully fleshed out, amazing persona. And basically every character in this book is, very distinct and crisp and how how do you do that do you have a process do you come up with characters beforehand do they evolve as you write how does that work i my characters are purely two-dimensional when i start right i i I am unable to sit there and conceive of a character um beforehand um i generally my characters by the end of my first draft is when i know who my characters are it virtually every time I write a story, I don't know who they are exactly until the end of the first draft. And then I go back and in revisions, I, I flesh them out and I write them into their fully three dimensional people that they are. Um, the, I, I, I find that really what I start with more than anything else is just, just, here's this person's situation and what do they want? And as soon as I know their motive, then I'm able to sort of build on their motive to build the character. And, um, and, and that's really how it goes for me. And, and that's not to say that sometimes I have to like, for instance, my editor, Gemma Craftfield, who, you know, um, you know, there were, there were two, there were two, um, I would call them peripheral characters, but who were important. And she was like, I just need a little bit more on these. I want to know a little bit more about them. What they do is, you know, she was like, I'm interested in them. I wanted a little bit more. And so I fleshed them out too. I'm, I'm certainly not immune to good editing. Um, and that, that really helped. But for the most part, mine are built as I'm writ- writing the story. And then they really, really apex in, in the first and second revisions. That's, that's where they really become who, who, who they are. And it's funny, you brought up the jar of pickles. Folks, this is not a talking jar of pickles. This is a jar of pickles, okay? And I have, I have, seen, I have seen reviews so far that just go on and on about the jar of pickles. And I love that. I absolutely love that an inanimate jar of pickles 
became sort of beloved. And I, I thought maybe that would happen and it was okay if it didn't happen, but it did sort of have that feel to it. And um, yeah, pe- you'll have to read it to see what happens to the jar of pickles, but um, it didn't start out that way. It started out as just uh, scene building where they happened to have this jar of pickles and I felt that at the moment of abduction, they should snag the jar of pickles. And so the jar of pickles comes with them and then it becomes kind of something a little bit bigger. It is very much, I, I think it will become associated with stringers in the way that towels are with hitchhikers. Right. Um, could Are we going to expect any pickles side adventures? <laughs> well, remember that anything that anything that uh, happens with pickles is because someone did something with pickles because, and I will repeat, pickles is a jar of pickles. <laughs> <laughs> so all of the side adventures will not because be because pickles chose them. Yeah. Although, although Ben and Patton do, you know, they do come to sort of attach themselves to pickles because pickles is a reminder of home and they, they decide that pickles is a, is a real pickle boy and they name, they name it Mr. Pickles. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this is, I mean, this is your second book uh, after, after the um, phlebotomist Mm -hmm. and how did you find it? Was it the difficult second book or did you write other things in the meantime? And this was something else. That's a great question. I started stringers before I started the phlebotomist. I put, I put stringers down to write the phlebotomist. Um, and it was the right thing at the time because it, first of all, it wasn't called stringers. It was called retro being, which is just hard to say. Um, but, but I had written about a hundred pages. I had that, that, that premise, which I really liked and I was chugging along and I maybe a little more than a hundred pages. I had like 130 pages written. I had never sold a book. I wasn't, I didn't have an agent or anything like that. I was just writing the next thing. And um, it was kind of petering out on me. I, I I had lost the thread a little bit. And then just so happened to come up with the idea for the phlebotomist. I put, I put that down. I wrote the phlebotomist in two months and then uh, went on to be rejected by 70 plus agents for that. And uh, eventually pulled it off the shelf and sent it to Angry Robot and, and the rest is history. And then after the phlebotomist, they they asked uh, if I had anything else sort of in the queue or that I was working on. And my agent and I um, pitched them, among other things, we pitched them what became Stringers, the, the first three chapters. And I have to thank my agent because... She was like, this is, yeah, this is, this is really funny. And the premise is compelling. You need to, you need to have the protagonist, Ben, make more choices and not just be a stick in a stream, you know? And that, that's something that, that, that's a really important point um, that, you know, especially when you have a great big world that is affecting your protagonist, your main character, how do you, how do you make them someone who makes decisions good or bad that will play into their future? And so she gave me some good advice on that. We, we tailored the first three chapters and I came up with the synopsis for the rest of the story, which by the way, the final book has nothing to do with the synopsis anymore. <laughs> um, 
and we pitched that to Angry Robot, and that's what they that's what they bought. And then we changed the title. I as I was writing it over the six months I wrote it, it went through probably ten different titles, and then Stringers was just it. Stringers was absolutely the the correct title. It sounds like there was some editorial input with Stringers. I mean, as the, as there always is, um, but you have previously mentioned that on the first book you had to add quite significantly um what did you come across any sort of major editorial uh changes with stringers or was it fairly seamless yeah that's that's a great question so you know phlebotomist being my first one was very just plot driven it had a good premise and a good plot but the characters and, and even some of the world building were a little thin i do tend to try to paint in clipped strokes. I, I like the reader to see the, the world as they see it, give them enough to see it. I hadn't given very much of the phlebotomist. I thought I had. And so Gemma, <clears throat> for that book, she said, you know, I think, I think all told you need to add about another hundred pages of fleshing out some of these characters, some of the world building and so forth. And I think I ended up adding about another 80 pages. Um, I took that lesson forward with Stringers. So when I sent it, when I sent Stringers to Gemma, who edited that as well, I I, I knew her expectations already, and um, I I wrote uh, a more robust story uh, where I really focused more on the world building. I focused more on the characters, and so there was nothing big that had to happen with Stringers. The uh, her editor's letter to me for phlebotomist had, I think like 25 big bullet points, which is a lot <laughs> of, of stuff to do. Uh, the one for stringers was four or five things that, that she wanted me to, to work on. But as I said, um, one of those was there were a couple side characters that she wanted a little bit more meat on the bone. Um, and then, there are those chapters I referenced, the instrument maker chapters, where she was like, I really like this. I think there should be more. So we, I took it from three chapters for that character to six. And they're short. Each one is only about a page and a half. They're all very, they're almost interludes. Um, and and they sort of, and you're, <laughs> they come out of nowhere and you're kind of going, what is this? And that's exactly what I want readers to do because obviously it's going to come together in the end, but that was really it. Just fleshing out some characters, um, explaining a couple of kind of technical things a a little bit more clearly, but on the whole, having done it once with Gemma, I I really knew her expectations and tried to deliver something that, that would um, make her happy. Do you feel that, you know, this is now your second book. Do you feel that you are now at a stage, especially with stringers to have, to have mastered, the ridiculousness and to have put it into this fantastical, epic, hilarious, but also emotionally resonant book. Where do you go from here, Chris? How do you top stringers? Uh, well, I don't, I, I, I appreciate that's a, that's a really sweet question. And I, I appreciate that. I, Only for you, my friend. <laughs> um, well, I don't think I'll ever write another stringers, uh, you know, um, that one was, I, I gave absolutely everything I could in terms of my own sense of humor um, and to tell that story. I don't think I'll tell another story like that again. 
Um, there will always be humor in my books. It's just, that's part of me. But this one was, I emptied the vault. <laughs> I emptied the vault on, on everything I had to make it just to, to try to make every beat a 10 and every beat won't end up being a 10, but that I, I did the best I could to, to make that happen. And, um, what I want to do is I always want to take, I always want to take a premise and turn it up all the way, uh, to, to, you know, I tried to do that with the phlebotomist. I had kind of a, a weird premise there and then same with stringers and my current book that I'm working on has been the hardest one to write of anything I've, I've done. I have rewritten it completely from scratch three times. Um, now I think I finally got it. I think I, I finally have it and I'm in revisions on that. Um, and then my agent and I will try to sell that. Um, that story is, <laughs> you know, you can fail if you're too audacious, but I, but I just think, well, okay, if you fail, then you just write another book. And, um, and I'm, I, that is how I kind of want to define my stories is to be as absolutely almost foolishly audacious as I can be. Um, and, and sometimes it won't work, but if it does work, it could be something really special. Um, and so that's what I tried to do with Stringer. Stringer is audacious. Um, and the current book I'm working on is <laughs> potentially more audacious, which is probably why I've had to write it three times to get it, to get it to work because it's so audacious and to, to not build a nest so heavy that it falls from the single thread that keeps it on the branch. You know, you, you have to keep it, it grounded. And, and the first two attempts, it fell from the branch and I knew it, you know, or it unraveled like a rubber band ball. Um, but this last one I think is, is, is going to make it. Um, so that's, that's going to be my goal is, is not to replicate anything, but the audacity of, of, I don't know, of foolishness <laughs> and, and hope that, and hope that I can pull it off. And, and just to remind myself that if I can't to try again, um, which is what I, what I've had to do with this, this new story. And look, if it, if it falls flat, I'll, I'll, I'll cry into my coffee and then I'll start a new one. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, sure. Um, so the, I credit, I have to credit my idea to my daughter because she asked me a question one day. She asked, um, why do churches have steeples? And that's an answer. I'm not a religious person, so that's not a answer. I know <laughs> I have lots of hypotheses, but instead of just giving her boring ideas of why I think churches have steeples, I, I kind of made up a story and I said, well, um, churches have steeples because they want to attract an angel. They want to attract the best angel. And, um, so the bigger, the steeple, the more powerful, the angel and the angel, of course, um, you know, helps the church delivers extra charisma to the, to the clergyman or whoever, and then they can deliver better sermons and they get more money in their coffers and let, then they can build an even better steeple. So that's not what the new book is about, but it was the, the, the kernel of it. And basically what the book is, is it's a, 
it's a, set, a, a very dark fantasy, a second world dark fantasy that also includes some some um, human world stuff. Um, and the way I describe it is, keep in mind this is dark fantasy, but it's sort of Monsters, Inc., except instead of monsters, it's another species who we would call angels. They have wings and halos, but they're not angels. They're just another species. And instead of collecting screams or laughs, as in uh, Monsters, Inc., they're collecting something else. Uh, I think it might be the the energy of wasted belief. So um, because to me, right, you think belief, there's nothing stronger than belief. Belief is very, very strong. And so I thought, what if, what if belief was a form of energy? And um, they take it back to their world and it powers their world. But there's a whole, there's probably six points of view in this story. It's, it's my first fantasy. It's, um, you know, my other books come in between 350, 375 words. This one is over 500. Um, And you're talking to somebody who, you know, look, in school, I had to write a 30-page paper once. And I was like, nobody has ever written that much. No one has written 30 pages of something. That just doesn't know who does that. And here I am now having a book that I will probably turn into my agent at over 500 pages. Um, and, and I hope not a single page is wasted. I, I, I write pretty quick from, from point to point and sometimes even get advice that, hey, you need to let it breathe a little bit because I'm all action and beats. So I, I don't think there's any wasted space in there. <laughs> um, and as I revise, I, I, am, I cut here and there, but then I'm, I'm, I'm building in. So I think this story, this story is built for those big, big moments, those big moments. There's a lot of really dark stuff, but a, a lot of really meaty, fun stuff as well. And there's plenty of humor um, as well. But it's a it's a dark fantasy by by every measure. Well, that sounds fantastic. And obviously, you're going to send it to me so I can read it. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna send it to you, and uh, uh, you can write back and tell me how great I am. Like I always do. Every day. <laughs> like you always do. Uh, no notes. This was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, we've got to wrap this up. So I just want to say thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And this book, people are not ready for it. Um, as soon as I read it and stopped laughing, I, I, I mean, I just knew it's going to be huge. And I'm so glad to see it getting the reviews that it deserves. So um Good luck with it. And thank you for talking to me today. Dan, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And I just, I want to reach through the screen and hug you because you're such a good friend. And I just, I I appreciate you reading my stuff and and chatting with me here. Well, you know, I think we could have talked for hours, but, you know, listeners don't want to hear us talk about how much we love each other in our hair. So (laughs) they see that on our Twitter. They see that on our Twitter timelines enough. (laughs) (laughs) They do. Anyway, thank you, uh, Chris, so much for joining me today. And um, good luck with Stringers. Thanks, Dan. That was me talking to author Chris Panettiere about his upcoming novel Stringers out on 12th April 2022. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our chat. I hope you enjoyed it. 
please subscribe to the show if you don't already. And if you fancy leaving a positive review, we will love you forever. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed the theme music. I'm Dan Hanks and I edited this episode. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of the New Books Network. And Leanne Wilson is the network's co-editor. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.